Hello, hello, gorgeous people. It's lovely to be with you again and have you in my warm embrace. If you've listened to the previous episodes and you've come back, then what the hell is wrong with you? But it's awesome to have you. Man, have I got a good one for you guys today. Joining me today for a chat is the amazing Anthony Slaughter, who not only has an awesome punk rock name, but he's also the leader of the Welsh Green Party. Now, it doesn't really matter where you stand politically on this issue, whether you agree, disagree, or couldn't give a shit. Um, I think this is going to be a very interesting, informative, provocative, perhaps, and hopefully useful conversation. I met Anthony a couple of times before. The last time I saw him, actually, was when he was interviewing me for the Green Party uh, YouTube channel. So it's nice to be able to turn the spotlight around and let him do the, uh, do the work today. <laughs> Anthony Slaughter is a lovely guy. He's a very knowledgeable and experienced guy. He works his ass off. He's very committed to the cause. He's been the leader of the Welsh Green Party since 2018, but has got a lifelong history behind him of campaigning and politics and activism. And in a previous life, he was a punk rocker, which kind of fits the name because Tony Slaughter is very punk rock. So let's cut to the chase. Anthony, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy. How the hell are you? I'm great, James. Thanks. Always good to talk to you. So thanks for the invite. Hey, anytime, anytime. So we're going to jump straight in because, um, you know, Anthony, like I say, he is a busy guy and he, he's a brain that I want to pick a lot of info from today. So um, as I said, Anthony is the leader of the Green Party. So who better to, to speak to on this subject? I'd like to first just get a quick 101 for the people that aren't up to date on this issue. Where are we currently at? on the climate issue? What's, what's the current situation? Well, we're not in a good place. Um, we've, known, we've known this has been coming for decades. We've had governments issuing warm targets and ambitious plans for the last couple of decades. We saw a disappointment at COP26 last year, November last year in Glasgow, when even the targets were agreed. The scientists were saying these weren't enough to stop. We've known about the worst excesses of climate change if we don't keep global warming below 1.5 degrees. And the targets that were raised at COP26 weren't far-reaching enough, weren't ambitious enough, and weren't speedy enough. And to back that up, because people like myself were saying that after COP26, and to some people, that oh, it's the usual suspects, we can never do enough for them. But to back that up, we have the recent IPCC, the Inter- International Panel on Climate Change Commission report, which said really starkly, in the starkest language they've ever used, that we are failing massively. We are so far behind where we need to be to keep global warming at 1.5. And even if we hit, even if we keep it at 1.5, we still now have so many impacts already baked in, increasing extreme weather events, all sorts of dramatic, horrible climatic upsets are going to happen already. So it's not only that we need to be thinking about um, lessening the impacts of climate change, but also how we build in the adaptation and resilience to do what's already going to happen. So we're not in a good place, and we've already got a UK government that is trying to backtrack on its agreements from COP26. But at the same time, I'm not by nature a pessimist. We are also in a good place in that awareness has never been higher. And what was what was inspiring for me at COP26 and in recent events that I've been to is we're starting to hear more from marginalised voices. While all the usual business as usual men in suits patting each other on the back was going on at COP26, there was also strong representation from indigenous communities around the world, making their voices heard and highlighting, because these are the communities that are being impacted already by the effects of global warming. So it was very, really encouraging to see those voices being heard, standing up, 
And in a parallel, I did an event at Cardiff University last night, a climate change, climate change awareness event. And again, it's the same. Voices of young people, and going back to Greta Thunberg, people who have been affected by this, people whose future is going to be affected by this, are speaking up. So we're not in a good place, but there is hope because a lot of people are aware of this and a lot of people are trying to do the right thing. Amen. Yeah, I mean, I share your optimism with regards to the youth of today. I mean, we're very lucky, I think, to have the young people that we've got. I've said that before. You know, they're so much more progressive and liberal and switched on to these issues. And uh, I, I, you know, when I look back at what I was like as a youngster, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, <laughs> sniffing glue or whatever, you know, sniffing pens and, you know, whatever else, you know, to see the, the youth of today, what they're doing at 16 and younger, you know, it is absolutely heartwarming to see. And, we, we, and that is, like, as you say, the only positive that we can look at as people of where we're at in our life is to know that the, the, the generations coming up under us are actually way more enlightened and way more active on these issues than certainly I was at that age. Definitely. I wanted to speak to you about, it does seem very bleak, and I know that it is. Are we beyond the point of no return or is there still a small window of hope? I mean, it seems to me that the sort of change necessary is only going to happen with massive systemic change. And given that that's not likely to happen, are we able to, have to salvage any kind of future for ourselves with, with, the, with the situation that we're in? Well, I was asked this the other day. Someone said, are we beyond all hope of keeping it to 1.5? And the answer to that is, well, we are if we give up now. And we definitely are. So we have to, despite the bleak outlook, we have to continue to advance our ideas, to fight. And you're absolutely right. It is. And individuals are important. This was a lot. The event I was at last night was about this a lot. Individual action is important. But it's system change that we need, not climate change. So it's about, it's about action on so many different levels. It's the awareness raising. It's the actions within communities, building community resilience and letting people feel empowered that they've got some control over their future. But also, I mean, that's why we're the Green Party, we're a political party. We need political change. We need to get our hands on the levers of government to make, make sure we're going the right direction, make sure the right decisions are made, and make sure that the decisions are made are for the benefit of all, not for the benefit of a few rich multinationals and oligarchs. 100%. Obviously, I've, I need to make sure that I don't make my personal bias <laughs> too overly apparent in this conversation because I am a member of the Green Party. So it's likely that everything Anthony says during this conversation, I'm going to agree with. So I'm going to try and play devil's advocate as much as I can. I mean, this, this is such an important issue that it's not one that we should play with or make light of uh, for the purposes of a podcast. But for those people that sort of haven't already subscribed to the urgency or, or the importance of this issue, let's let's say um, somebody in society who's recently unemployed, they're struggling for housing, they've got kids to feed, you know, they've got way more urgent pressing problems than something abstract and, and future-based like a, a, you know, a climate disaster. What can we say to those people to, to get them on side? Because all of us need to be on side with this issue because not only does it require systemic change, but it also requires the uh, changes to a lot of our lifestyles as well in terms of the things that we eat, the way that we travel, our recycling and waste and plastic and things like that. But also the systemic change is only going to come from us voting for the right parties or also 
getting involved in uh, activist activities as well. So ultimately, it's, uh, you know, it is about all of us across the board. Um, so for those many people, I think, that, that aren't active in this area or even conscious in this area, what can we say to those people that, that feel they've got bigger problems? So it's a really good point. And um, I was expecting something more controversial when you said devil's advocate. So it's, <laughs> we, we, we've got to take everyone with us because it affects everyone. And like so many decisions that are made in society and the way we're governed, the people making these decisions are the least affected by it. And we need to speak to people about their lives, about their lived experiences. This isn't some abstract academic theory. This is something that is going to happen, is happening, and is impacting some of the poorest, most vulnerable in our communities here in Wales, and even more so globally. And when when we talk to people about these issues, and people often sort of categorise the Green Party as, yes, you're about the environment, you're talking about climate change. Absolutely, it's the pressing issue of our time. But what we recognise is that everything is interlinked. Because if you look at it, climate change and the situation that we've got to is a result of unequal distribution, unequal use of planetary resources over the past decades. Some people, us in the West, have used more than our fair share of the world's resources, causing this problem and not leaving sufficient resources for life on the continent Earth as we know it. But going back to the individual, the local, people care about their neighbourhood. They care about where they live. You're absolutely right. They care about increasing so, and I fear it's going to get worse. They care about where the next meal's going to come from, where the next paycheck's going to come from. And this can seem an irrelevance. But I also, you know, I go, I go door knocking in, in the Rondekin and Tap in the valleys, and people, when I take people up there who've never done that before, they say, can't talk to people about climate change. They're, they're struggling. You know, their daily life is a struggle. And you bring it back to the things that we need to do to stop the worst effects of climate change, to mitigate damage, are all things that will improve people's lives anyway. We're talking about cleaning up air, clean air. You know? polluting, polluting, polluted air is one of the key causes of death in this country. We're talking about decent, warm housing you know, how, and sustainable economy, green jobs, people being paid a proper living wage, living warm housing, not being forced to choose between eating and heating, so, and reliable public transport, free public transport, if it was, if it was down to me. So all of these things, you, you go to people and you talk to people about what's impacting their lives, what would make that better, and so often the issues overlap because... You know, we have it's almost a mantra that there's no climate justice without social justice, no climate justice without racial justice. All these things are interlinked. So it's going to talk to people, and this is where politicians get it wrong so often. And partly because politicians, to a large extent, not all of us, but to a large extent, come from a certain sector of society. They don't have the lived experience. So even the well-meaning ones, and there are some well-meaning ones, they do not understand the reality of their constituents' lives. Lives, so they are unable to actually come up with concrete solutions. There's also the short termism of the electoral cycle, so people, it's always quick fixes or it's always patching up something that's gone wrong. Instead of a long term vision about how do we make society work for all of us, give everyone a good quality of life without trashing the planet. Such a brilliant answer, and that's one of the things I wanted to touch on was how all of these issues are interconnected. I'd love to come back to that in a bit more detail, but skipping ahead just a little bit to solutions, because I know that there are solutions to all of these things that already exist. Let's discuss some of those, if that's cool. I want to talk about 
let's talk about energy. Seems as though that is obviously a, a major one at the moment with energy prices going through the roof. And of course, that's not going to be helped with the situation with Russia and Ukraine. Is it possible for us to, to have the energy that we need as a, as, a, as a growing global population without reliance on fossil fuels? The short answer is yes. And I think um, this, the Russian-Ukraine situation has highlighted something that we've been flagging up for years, that this reliance on fossil fuel leaves us vulnerable and exposed to, to exactly what's happening now. It shows that if we've made the switch faster to proven working renewable technologies earlier, we wouldn't be in this situation now. The, the knowledge has been there for a long time, the, the solutions, different ways of generating clean energy. But it's also, it's not just about the generation of energy, it's about how we use the energy as well. To go back to my point about insulating homes, I can't remember the figure now, but it was a shocking figure the other day about the number of homes in the UK with lots that don't have insulation. So not only are we creating energy in a polluting and climate damaging way, we're actually wasting that energy on top of that. And you have a, a case that's quite close to me at the moment that we're working on a lot, which has been in the news recently, was the Coal Authority granted an extension to carry on mining coal at the Pergam Coilery just outside Nice. Now, this extension gives the owners, Energy Build Limited, the license to mine another 100 million tonnes of coal, which will produce massive amounts of CO2, massive amounts of methane, and makes a mockery of the UK government's climate targets. And the argument that comes back from people is, well, we need that coal because we, this is just an example of how it's all interconnected. We need that coal because we need it for Tata Steelworks. Otherwise, we'd have to import the coal for Tata Steelworks. And that's an emotive subject because it's jobs. You know, and Wales knows only too well. Wales has suffered so much in the past when industries are shut down with no proper planning. But the argument goes back on that because then people will say to me, ah, but we need steel. We need steel for wind turbines. And we do. We need steel wind turbines, we need steel for electric buses. Steel can be produced. This shows how it's all been skewed over the years. Steel can be produced without using coal. It's been, it's been known for decades now. It was first mooted in Wales in 2016. The government's, UK government, Wales, Welsh government, didn't take the action they could have taken then to make that shift. Because this is what we've been arguing for a long time, is the shift. We don't just shut things down. It's not you know, the bright new future just doesn't happen tomorrow when we shut all the dirty industry down. We have to switch to sustainable, clean, green production, means of production and industry. And with the right imagination and politicians and business leaders thinking of the future, that is doable. So the technologies are there. I mean, it's frustrating today. Michael Gove, of all people, is suddenly talking about the potential for tidal power and harnessing the power of the seven. After his government sort of threw it out a decade ago, sort of, ignored the idea and it's made a mockery of it. So we can't keep, and Wales, the Welsh government is particularly bad at this as well, we can't keep having reviews over these things when the people designing and building the technology are there. It's all waiting to happen. And on the green steel, for instance, in Sweden last year, I can't remember the name of the firm, they produced their first order of sustainable fossil fuel-free steel. And they're looking at going into industrial-scale production in the next two years. So these things are doable. They've been doable for a long time. And what's going back to the targets and the urgency, so the target is the net zero globally by 2050. The problem we have with that is lots of people, politicians, like to think 2050 is a long way off. There's a good few elections before 2050. If we're going to meet that net zero by 2050 through 
renewable energy generation and everything else it entails. The actions we take in the next 10 years are going to be vital because we have fallen so far behind. So the solutions are there, it is doable, but it's going to need such dramatic action from governments and industry now. Whereas if we'd started to make those transitions 20 years ago when we knew about the problem, the change on people's lives would have been more gradual. It would have been a welcome thing because people would be able to see the benefits. Whereas now we're reaching an increasingly state of urgency, of emergency. And then we still have our politicians saying, Jacob Rees-Mogg said it in a debate on the Abercrombie coal mine. It's not 2050 yet. We can carry on. It's not 2050 yet. That's a little bit like um, <laughs> your house is on fire. Yeah. You phone the fire brigade and they say, great, we've logged that. We'll send someone around in two months. Yeah. We need to hold our politicians to account and get them to take that action. Well, the guys that we've got at the moment are driving us all on a train that's on fire over the edge of a cliff, aren't they? Yeah. I, I'm not even going to get started on all of that. But I mean, you know, we've had a Tory monopoly now for decades, pretty much, haven't we? You know what I mean? And the Labour Party, as far as I'm concerned, are pff, like redundant, irrelevant at this point. So it is easy to become very overwhelmed and apathetic when you look at the political route out of this. What role do you feel that direct action and activism can have in, in um, being the catalyst for change? I, I think they have a crucial role to play. There's a lot of overlap between parliamentary action, activism on the streets. Um, I've often said, you know, we often say that um, we are with exile and of exile. There's a lot of overlap between how we raise issues. And going back to the roots of the Green Party, we are fundamentally a party that believes in the value of non-violent civil disobedience, if that's what it takes to make, make our case. So we overlap a lot. A lot of our members are members of XR. I'll attend rallies. It's, there is a lot of common areas to work on. And at this event last night with Cardiff students, we shared the platform with XR, XR Cymru. And we're working with them, I'm working with them, XR Cymru, on the Abapurgan coal mine issue. And we've got a rally, joint rally outside the Senate next Tuesday at two o'clock to highlight this issue. And I always like to say, you know, we're faced with these daunting challenges of climate justice, injustice and social injustice. And they can seem overwhelming to people. And everyone has to find their way of dealing with it. How do they engage with it? And I always make the case for three strands. There's the awareness raising, and that's the stuff on the streets. That's the stuff that XR do so well. That's the stuff that Greta has done so well. Making people aware of it, making it impossible to ignore. Our politicians might keep their heads in the sand, but people know what's happening and people are concerned. People are angry and people want to see the change that's needed. So there's absolutely a very, very valuable place for that. The second strand I, I often talk about is community involvement, community engagement. And this can be something this is almost the softer stuff. It's the transition town stuff. It's communities coming together and saying, well, how? All this stuff's happening. We've got to become more resilient. And that's communities exploring ways of making their communities more resilient, whether it's food-growing schemes, safer, tra safer active travel options. And there's an important place for that as well. And sometimes people, and we said earlier on, it's system change, not climate change. And sometimes some of the more radical activists will sort of, sneer at these sort of community initiatives and I, I, I often I caution against that because people need to find their own place and people in the face of this daunting challenge need to feel empowered and so often I've seen people in my community who are engaged in lower level community engagement taking that next step which is how I, which is how I joined the Green Party and running for office or 
attending demos, signing petitions, all of these have their place to play. And then the third strand, which is where we come in as a political party, is making the political change. And we see the difference. Now, we're up against it in Wales and the UK because of our unfair voting system. But you just have to look at Scotland, which has a slightly similar um, election system to us, par- partially proportional. And the difference of getting those Scottish Greens who are now in government has made the way that that speeds up the change that's needed. And we can get quite depressed about the electoral system here in the UK. But then as Greens, I often have to remind our members, you're not just a member of the Wales Green Party, you're a member of the European Greens, you're a member of the Global Greens. And Greens, a lot of people in this country know this, but Greens are in government in one shape or form in eight countries in Europe now. So I think all these three strands work together. They complement each other and reinforce each other. So absolutely, to answer your question briefly, not like a politician, <laughs> activism on the streets does have a key role to play. Well, I'm glad you mentioned XR because I actually had uh, Tatiana, who is who runs the the global XR accounts on social media and uh, is also involved in a lot of the messaging and strategy as well. She came on on the weekend. Uh, I've spoken to her a few times and she's absolutely brilliant. And her podcast, it hasn't been released yet, but it is absolutely brilliant. It's, it's a treasure trove of information about activism and many of these issues as well we cover from the perspective of XR. Um, so check out that one when it comes out as well for everyone that's listening. Look forward to that. Yeah, she's got a lot of energy, man. And uh, I got a little bit drunk as well doing it, which uh, which is a mistake I shall not repeat. But um, I mean, that kind of ties into my next question that I wanted to ask you, which is what can ordinary, I mean, I hate to use the term ordinary people, but you you know what I'm, what I'm getting at. Mm. What can ordinary everyday people, what can they do in their daily lives to make a difference? I think being aware of the situation, being aware of the problem, being aware of the changes that are needed. Yes, but it's not about lecturing people. It's not about telling people you need to do this or do that. There are things people can do which will reduce their own emissions, but on on the, on its own, it won't be enough. I mean, there was back in the very first lockdown when everything shut down, no planes were in the sky, hardly anyone was driving, and a lot of people got very excited and said, "This will show you how it can be." And emissions did fall during that period. I don't have the percentages to hand anymore, but not by nowhere near enough. So all that, if we got everyone to do all those things, it still wouldn't reduce enough. That's not to say you shouldn't do those things. And that goes back to what I was saying about people wanting to feel having some agency in the issue, some control. So absolutely look at what you're consuming. Look at things like fast fashion. Look at food production. Look at how you get around. But you see, that this always comes back to it's no good us telling people you spend too much time driving in your car. If society isn't providing a workable and affordable means of getting around on clean, sustainable public transport. So the other thing, the key thing, while people are looking at addressing personal behaviour, which is important, it's always, but when you're looking at issues of personal behaviour as well, I do think it's ignore the policeman in your head. In my youth, you know, I'd be a militant vegan, animal rights activist, and would just go around shouting at people. And you've got to stop doing this, you've got to stop doing that. You're not going to win anyone over. You're not going to make anything in the society of the world better by doing that. It's about having conversations with people. It's about making people. You know, flying is one is one example. People say, "Oh, the Green Party, you just don't want me to fly." We want there to be a lot less flights 
globally because flights are a major cause of CO2 emissions and the technology to change that is many, many years away. But then you come back to the fact that I think it's 70% of flights, international flights from the UK, are made by 15% of the population. This is where it comes back to being a social justice issue because those few people who can afford to fly wherever they want for the weekend are doing the bulk of the flying. Whereas someone who saves up all year to go and visit their mother in Australia shouldn't be made to feel guilty about that. That's why you need a balance of using the levers that government has to make doing the right thing the easy thing to do. Provide free public transport so people don't feel like they need to use their car. Have a frequent flyers levy so that people who are flying the most are paying the most for it. And then that comes back down to what can individuals do and what individuals can do, and it's frustrating because our political system is so broken in this country, is agitate for that change as well. Contact your elected representatives. Join campaigns for electoral reform. Join a political party. And guess which party I'm going to suggest you join. But get engaged. (laughs) But don't do any engagement. Get involved. Find out what's going on. Start to speak to your elected representatives. Start to let your elected representatives know that people are watching, not in a threatening way, but we are watching, we are scrutinising, and the time for greenwash is over. The time for saying the right thing and signing off another coal mine is over. So by all means, make those lifestyle changes. In many cases, they'll lead to a healthier lifestyle as well. But for people agitating for those changes, just, I would urge them not to wag fingers and not to lecture people about their lifestyles because ultimately, at the right back to where we were in the beginning, is going to take system change to fix this problem. And eat less beef. That's a big one. Absolutely. You know? And I'm a meat eater. So coming back to what you were saying about not lecturing people, I totally get that because nobody responds well to that. And I'm a lifelong meat eater, but I'm trying to get it down to at least two days a week now, if not less. But I mean, animal rights aside and the cruelty to the animals aside i mean some people just straight up don't care about that you know but i mean staying on the climate issue isn't it something like 21 percent of all global emissions is is related to agriculture is is it that high it's a significant amount and it's it's, this is an interesting one because i'm i'm a sort of lapsed vegan not quite vegan that much anymore but i've done a lot of work with people with local farmers and with NFU Comrie. And I'll get some of my more serious vegan agitated friends who are just horrified that I'd even set foot on a dairy farm. Not understanding that I'm saying a small family run farm that's been in the family for generations that is part of the culture and history of that area. And I've I've done a lot of events with farmers and I'm really pleased that as a party ourselves we're getting better at this conversation because Farmers and the Green Party should be on the same side. They're the custodians of the landscape and they produce our food. We need a good working relationship. It goes back to what I was saying about a just transition. We don't just say, as some people will do, and unfortunately they do, we don't just say, stop cattle farming in Wales, stop sheep farming in Wales. And when I speak to the farmers, and I'm I'm talking about small or family-sized farms, independent farms, not not the big, massive chicken factories, which absolutely should be shut yeah. down instantly. Yeah, fuck those guys. It's, yeah, I find, I find myself talking to people who care about these issues as much as I do. And they get so messed around by governments. We need, we need farmers to be subsidised for doing the right things. 
and we need people to be more educated about what it is, what food is, the importance of it. And as you said, not everyone is going to stop eating meat. It's not an option for some people. It's not affordable for some people, possibly. But eat better meat. And eat better meat, eat it less often. Support support those farmers that are trying to do the right thing. It's, I'm, I have to be careful because I'm turning into an advert for Welsh, Welsh lamb here, aren't I? <laughs> it, it's, it's always about balance. And it's always, when people are looking at individual behaviour as well, it's the recognition that all of us live lives of compromise. You can't go off and live a guilt-free life. We all live lives of compromise. And it's recognising the changes that you can make when you make them. Not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. And again, going back to that need, work for the change, work for the system change. Get, let's get people in power or in, in control who understand these issues and are willing to work for a long-term future. Yeah, hopefully it's clear now that at every turn we take on this issue, we keep coming back to the premise that the social and the personal and the political are all connected to the issue of climate change. And we're not really going to be able to make any effective change on that issue without attending to the other issues. And as you've said, you know, without change at the governmental and the corporate level, very little can really change because it's a structural systemic problem, which is why it's really frustrating in our country with the way that the voting system is rigged, whereby it's only ever two or really one party that ever gets a look in. So with regards to electoral reform, what can be done there? Is there a campaign that we can get behind to support something like proportional representation? I mean, is, is, is there anything out there already on that front? There's UK-wide, there's Make Votes Matter that are pushing for electoral reform. They're, um, the big stumbling block to electoral reform, it's unfortunate and sad to say, the big stumbling block is the Labour Party. If the Labour Party would get on board, we could get the government in place that would introduce electoral reform. But they're still tied to that. If we win once every 15 years, that's good enough. We get a little go at power. We're not going to. It's that belief that it is that everyone outside the Labour Party and Conservative Party is an annoying irrelevance, and it's it is deeply, deeply frustrating. Yeah, it is frustrating, and it just leads to um, voter apathy. I think, and I didn't vote for many years because I thought, well, what's the point? You know, they both represent the same class and corporate interests. And although I was a member of the Green Party previously, you know, before I deflected to the uh, the other side and then came back again. Um, that was purely out of a feeling of, well, yes, I agree with everything the Green Party says, but we're locked out of the club. So I totally relate to that. Um, so that's great. So uh, Make Votes Matter is a campaign that people can check out with regards to electoral reform, because I think yeah. that's an essential step that needs to be taken before we can really get to work on the systemic problems. Absolutely. So we've spoken about the societal connection to this. And one of the misconceptions that I suffered from before I became a member of the Green Party was this notion that the Green Party is a one-issue party. But the reason I joined is because it's really not. You know, forget Labour. You know, if you want a party that represents 
you know, working people and wages and housing and transport and education and, you know, all of the things that matter to the rest of us, not the 1%, then we need to not be looking at Labour anymore. We need to look, be looking at the Green Party. I mean, the manifesto is broad. It covers all aspects of civil life, you know, as well as human rights and foreign policy. And these are all policies that are in the interests of the people. So for people who aren't already aware of that, can they find your manifesto online? Yeah, we, we have policies that cover the whole range of issues because, as we've said earlier on, everything is interconnected. Everything is part of the same issue of inequality and resource allocation. I did a lot of work for a long time. I was probably the Wales Green Party spokesperson on housing. We do a lot of housing events and housing issues and putting stuff out there about housing. And, you know, just highlight what you're talking about. Sometimes I get people go, but why do the Green Party want to build houses? Why do the Green Party talk about housing? And it takes it right back to you know, your home, your house. It's, it's the first environment, and it, it, it is your environment. And if you're housed, if your home is somewhere that's not fit for human habitation, if the message you're getting by the place you're given to live is that no one really cares about you, why are you going to care about anything? It's, you know, it's your immediate environment, and if you don't, if you can't love your immediate environment and cherish it, how on earth can be expected to cherish and work for the wider environment? So that's just one example of how these issues are all so important. Putting aside the technical issues that decent housing built fit for the future will help tackle the climate crisis as well, and then transport and justice, all these issues. So yeah, we have a wide range, wide raft of policies that covers all of these issues because we recognise, as we said earlier, the interconnectedness. And then we're going about equality and inequality. We need to broaden that to a global level and look at the fact that you know, we in the UK, as part of I want a better world, where the, the Western world, have historically contributed the vast majority of the emissions that are causing these problems now. So it's not only that we have even more of a sense of duty to do the right thing to try and mitigate and fix this problem, we actually have a debt to most of the world situation that we've caused that's not to put on a hair shirt and say oh we're all doomed but it's just to recognize again that it's that allocation of resources that's why one of the policies that we have been talking about a lot, a lot about in recent years is reparations and it comes on the back of black lives matter movement but it's also about climate reparations it's about and quite often there's a misconception you talk about rep reparations and people think of it as compensation because we're so used to thinking in terms of monetary exchange being the way all things are done. But for me and for the Green Party, the key part of reparations is it's about repairing. It's about repairing the relationships between communities, repairing relationships between people and planet. So that's because of all these, these things are so inextricably linked. We, we have to. We have to address them all. And that's where we have this vast policy document that does, does address all of these issues. And anyone wants to have a look at Green Party manifestos, they will see that we talk probably in more depth than some of the other parties about some of these issues. And quite often, we're talking about them a long time before everyone else. And universal basic income is one of those. It's been part of our policy program. It's been in our manifestos for decades. And it's so welcome to see the interest from other parties, to see the public getting awareness of this. And that, that highlights... I think that probably answers your question quite well because it highlights an issue that people wouldn't associate with. People who see us as the environmental party wouldn't associate a policy as universal basic income as having come to a large part degree from the party like the Green Party. Yeah, I mean, I think of it as very much like 
the Green Party is what I always thought the traditional Labour Party was supposed to represent, you know? Workers' rights, unions, education, public housing, mm -hmm. you know, um, democracy. I thought that's what the Labour Party was, was supposed to represent. And for many years, I clung on to the idea that it still did. But, um, you know, now, as far as I can see, the only players in the mainstream political landscape, certainly in the UK, that offer any of those things are the Green Party. And uh, that's why I'm a member I say what I just said without any bias. I, I'm, I, I say that because I think it's true. You know, I can't think of any other parties in the mainstream sphere that genuinely represents the interests of ordinary working people on all of these different issues. Are there any? I don't think there are, are any really, are there, other than you guys? No. No, I think, I think there's a growing recognition of that. And it's been really welcome to see interest from different communities and different groups engaging with the Green Party. And, and a large, to a large extent, some of that in recent years as well has been partly like your, the discussions I had with you previously. People have given up hoping that Labour are going to get it. You know, that, that just, and the problem for Labour is they are still wedded. For a party that came from such good foundations, they are still wedded to this idea of eternal growth you know, on a finite planet. So until all their, all their policies are going to hit that brick wall. So they can be pro this, pro that. And while they still believe that we can continue to act as though we live on nine planets, their policies will never add up. And they have become, for a party that sprung out of the labor movement, clues in the name, isn't it? They have, they have become so divorced from that, from that reality in that sector. Yeah, it's very demoralizing and it's very easy to become apathetic and to feel like there's no hope and to, and to give up, which I did for many years. So I can totally relate to that feeling, which I know is quite popular at, at the moment in the age of the Internet and conspiracy theories and, you know, relentless info saturation. But really, there is a lot of hope, at, you know, just to loop back to what you said right at the start, you know, out there on the streets, we've now got Extinction Rebellion, who are doing amazing work in raising awareness and direct action. I mean, they've only been around a few years, but they're a household name now and have a global membership. And in terms of the parliamentary route to change, we do have the Green Party. Thank God. So we have got all of the things we need are already there. All we need now, really, is more people on the streets, more people joining the Green Party, more people getting behind strategies and campaigns for electoral reform so that, so that other parties do stand a, a fighting chance of actually getting a look within Parliament. And is there anything else that you would like to say before I take a big left turn and talk to you about punk rock because you have you have, <laughs> you have an awesome punk rock frontman name Tony Slaughter and, uh, and I know that you were a former punk well you know once a punk always a punk I suppose you know but uh, <laughs> but the mohawk's gone so before before I round up with that because I want to quiz you about that is there anything You'd like to say you, you, you can be as politically biased and as promotional as you like. It's my podcast. We can do what the hell we like. Um, <laughs> what would you like to say to people listening? Just, yeah, just get out there and find, find out more. If you don't know much about Green Party, go online, look at our websites, look at our policies. There'll be a local party near you. Always, always welcoming, always willing to answer questions. Continue to be active. Continue to raise your voice. And don't take greenwash. Don't accept greenwash from industry or governments. 
time, the climate crisis is too urgent for us to let them play party political games with it. And in terms of uh, resources online, where can they get access to the manifesto? Is it on the Green Party website? Well, there's the Wales Green Party website. And to my shame, I don't have the details in front of it. It will be quite easy to Google. I'll figure it out, yeah. yeah there's Green Party in the Wales website. You know, I've got the Cardiff website. There will be a local party near you. But start up on the main party pages, and that will direct you to all the resources. And it's all over all the usual social media as well. You'll find Wales Green Party, your local Green Party, on Twitter, Facebook, some of them on Instagram, and even some on TikTok. Oh, wow. Are you dancing on there, holding it up? <laughs> I haven't done TikTok yet. No. <laughs> the night is young yet. It doesn't, feel very, it doesn't feel very punk. It's not very punk, no. But that was a very professional segue, and you've, you've clearly done this before. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get down to what is the most important issue of the conversation, which is your surname and how punk rock it is. Tony Slaughter. I love that. I didn't think that was your real name when we first met, but apparently it is. So, so you're, you've told me before, you're, you're, a, you're a punk guy, right? Yeah, this is um, quite a while back. This was in um, Apartheid era South Africa. I was just finishing high school in Cape Town. Uh, yeah, I was, um, punk came along, we were a couple of years behind. It was um, 1979 when we picked up on it, so a bit of a time lag. But it chimed quite well with the frustrations of living under that political system and qualify that absolutely by saying as a privileged white, white person in apartheid South Africa, but being aware of the situation and trying to figure out how to challenge it. And, yes, yeah, so I ended up as the singer is a grand word, but um, vocalist for one of the first South African punk, one of the first Cape Town punk bands, um, the first punk, first punk single, South African punk single to be released in the UK was by us. Wow. And I suppose I'm going to be hostage to fortune now and give you the name, aren't I? Yeah, I, I, I didn't know about that, mate. <laughs> That's awesome. You've got to give us the name. What's it called? It, the band was called Riot Squad SA because there was a Riot Squad in English punk scene, a really awful Riot Squad, part of the oil movement right. in England. But yeah, it's Riot Squad SA. First single was put out. Crass Records helped us a lot. Crass, Crass were people who helped us through rough trade. Wow. So the first single came out through them. And it's all, it's, it's not awful, but it's very crude and basic. Sounds like and I like it. I came over to London. <laughs> I came over to London with that, and the rest of the band didn't follow me, so I went back. And they'd actually matured. The musicians had got a bit better then. And there was another, there was another record came out. Polarization time, which we self-produced, which was much more of your sort of clash, cod reggae type thing. Wow! So how long are you doing this for then? On and off, about four years, probably. Jesus! And what sort of period? Are we talking seventies or eighties? It was nineteen eighty to eighty-four. Yeah. Right. Bloody hell! I didn't realize you were in a band and everything as well. That's awesome, man. <laughs> I'm going to regret it. <laughs> yeah, the secret's out now, man. So you're going to have to reform and do a gig. We'll do a gig together. <laughs> so I'm guessing then, would you say you're a clash man? Um, I've been thinking about this all day because I knew you were going to ask me about <laughs> music. And for something that was a major part of my life for so long, the last couple of years, I think politics 
and activism has taken over. So, but going back to bands that mattered and the other ones I might revisit. Yeah, the Clash, the Clash are up there with the classics, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, somebody because uh, like I grew up like for me the Sex Pistols was the thing you know because it was anarchic and rebellious and loud and I'd never mm. heard anything like it. But then the older I've gotten and obviously I'm a musician myself now and stuff like that. Um, I mean this is this is yeah. probably a bone of contention. I don't know if you'll agree with this, but I've I've come to realize that the Sex Pistols were kind of a manufactured punk band, like. You know, I, I'm sure that they meant yeah. everything that they said and they did, you know, uh, and, and, you know, Never Mind the Bollocks is a classic album. You know, I love that album. But the reality mm-hmm. is, you know, the backstory of the band is that they were, you know, the product of a clothes shop owner who, who got the branding together and, and you know, they were, yeah. they were a major label band, you know, which is why most people have heard of them is because they were signed to EMI, you know. Um, whereas I feel like mm-hmm. The Clash for me, were much more authentic. I mean, they were a major label band as well, but I mean, it's been said that the Sex Pistols would, you know, make you throw a brick through a window, but the Clash would give you a reason to do so. You know, I felt like their lyrics were much more intelligent. Their music was much more um, versatile. I just thought they were cooler. And I thought they were, um, they felt like the real deal to me, you know? I know what you mean. I mean, the Clash did... Then when the bollocks sort of blew everything open, and being one of those people at the time who sort of saw it as year zero, when you listen back now, it's not really that radical an album, apart from the fact that you swear a bit every now and then. Yeah. But yeah, you can't take away from what it opened up. And yeah, you're highlighting the um, major label thing, because what excited me when I came over to the UK was the sort of indie explosion that came out of that, the do-it-yourself stuff. You know, we ended up heavily involved with the whole Crass Records network, the whole you know, people putting things out themselves. And then when that went off into strange different directions, I found that that was actually almost the more exciting part of it. But you're right, in terms of, you know, I can't remember, it must be, must be years and years since I've ever listened to the Sex Pistols, but the Clash do get a hearing every now and then. Oh, yeah, I was listening to them just recently, man. Uh, fantastic, man. And it is uh, so interesting in the fact that the DIY label model is now the the main deal these days. You know, I mean, like major labels still exist, but there's only like three of them. And all the other labels mm. that exist are owned by those three major labels. It's like now very much the norm is is for bands to do things DIY. You know, you record things in your house, release it on your own label. You know, you can put it up straight up on, um, you know, on Spotify or Apple Music and promote yourself on Instagram or whatever it is, you know. That's the DIY model. And it's almost like, the hip hoppers were doing it, you know, in the eighties and nineties. Mm. But but I think it started with punk, you know. Yeah, I think there was um, small scale stuff that happened before then. But yeah, probably that was where it really kicked off. Yeah, well, I'm major inspired by that period, but at the same time, I wasn't around at that time. So I'm probably looking back with like rose tinted goggles because everyone that I know that lived through that period said it was fucking awful, like, <laughs> really tough times, you know. But I suppose um, hard times make for good music, don't they? True, true. That's a good point. <laughs> well, on that note, Ant, man, it's been great to speak to you. Thanks so much for giving us your time. There's been absolute treasure trove of knowledge and information and uh, questions answered there, which I hope has been really interesting for people listening. I, I'm sure that it will be. Can people find you online? Yeah, um, on Twitter at AS underscore Panath, Wales Green Party Leader Facebook page, and stuff on Cardiff Green Party's Facebook, um, Cardiff Green Party's website. 
Brilliant. And I'll, I'll link you in as well when I put this out. Thanks so much for coming on. It's always amazing to speak to you. Thanks so much for your time. And thanks for everything that you do out there in the field as well. You know, you, you, you're a tireless, tireless campaigning, fighting the good fight. And we all appreciate everything you do. And if you're not a member of the Green Party already, God damn it, what are you waiting for? Get involved and get on there and sort it out. <laughs> I couldn't have put it better. It's been great talking to you as well. Great talking to you as always, James. Thanks so much for the invite. You're welcome anytime. Thank you, Matt. I hope to see you again soon. Take care, mate. Cheers, Ed. There we go. Anthony Slaughter, guys. Um, awesome guy. Lovely guy. Really, really works so hard and has been doing so for so long to fight for the good fight. And a punk rocker at heart as well. I hope you enjoyed listening to that and I hope you found it informative and interesting, even if that's not where you sit politically. And um, apologies for making my bias so overt, but, you know, I'm honest. I'm not going to fucking lie to you. Anyone that has known me long enough knows I'm a hardcore lefty. But I hope you found that interesting. I mean, it is such an important issue, regardless of where you sit politically, whether you're left, right, in the middle, up or down, slightly sideways, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know, at the end of the day, we all live on the one planet and the, the science is out on this. It's irrefutable. You know, we are heading towards a mass extinction event within what, it's like 80 years or something? I mean, don't quote me on that. I haven't got the numbers at hand, but I mean, it's serious shit, man. You know, just because we're not seeing it on our doorstep right now doesn't mean that it's not real. It is It is happening on people's doorsteps all around the world. We're just not, we're just not seeing it over here yet. But when it comes, it's going to come hard and it's going to come fast and it's going to stay. So it's a real issue. It's an issue that will affect all of us in, in so many ways that we can't even imagine right now from our agriculture and our economy and our water and our transport and our employment and everything is going to be affected by the change in the, uh, in the environment, which could have knock-on effects with you know, war and immigration and social division. Just not worth it. It's just not worth it. You know, we, we've got a small window of opportunity, like Anthony said, to actually try and move this in a different direction. But we really have got to get our head out of our ass and move fast. So do check out the Green Party. Um, just have a look. You know, their website is greenparty.org.uk. Nice and simple. I know that there's a version in America and I know that every country around the world has pretty much got something, an, an, a green equivalent. So um, to do check them out. And, and as Anthony said, you know, have a chat with your local representative of the party and, and ask them the tough questions. If you don't believe it or you don't agree with some things that Anthony has said, go and have a chat with them. They're a much smaller and therefore much more approachable and accessible party than you know labor or conservative or republicans and democrats but please do get involved this is so important this is a real moment in history right now and it's on us the time is now okay lecture over <laughs> back to business as usual i hope you enjoyed the podcast i'm not going to be browbeating you about political issues every week i promise me there will be musical guests on and all anyone and everyone is welcome on here okay so please do subscribe, hit the like button, hit the dislike button, leave your comments, tell me where I went wrong, disagree. If you want to hit the notification bell as well so you get the update when these things come out, hit that too. And please subscribe because subscriptions are pretty much the life and death of these uh, podcasts. So uh, please hit the subscribe button and hit the like and you know leave your thoughts. And I shall see you for the next episode, which will be coming out, who the hell knows, might be a few days, might be tomorrow, might be next week, but I'll see you there. In the meantime, stay well, stay safe, love you loads, kick ass.